right. Inappropriate Earl is back, back in the house. You know, we had to take like a week and a half off after having uh, Samir Suri on twice in a month because uh, we had to let the gayness air out of the podcast. And I had to uh, find maybe the straightest guy I know for a little counterbalance. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Samir's great. He, he's the best. And, uh, you know, I also uh, did a stint on Ty Rivera's podcast, Unbothered. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that, go, you know, rarely do I plug someone else's podcast, but uh, we broke it down. I mean, uh, Ty's real. He keeps it real. Maybe too real for some people, but uh, it was honored to do his podcast. Uh, but now I'm back to Inappropriate Earl. And uh, today's guest is someone... Uh, we're going to talk more stand-up today in life, I think, because he's uh, not really associated with Roast Battle, which I talk about a lot on this show. It's like the greatest show ever. It's done a lot for me. So thank you, Jeff Ross and Brian Moses <laughs> and Comedy Central. But uh, I've known this man. We've done more shitholes together than like Quiet Riot and Slaughter, you know, uh, Liquid Zoo, uh, Ireland's 32. I mean, I mean just uh, for you people not knowing what I'm talking about, these are like open mics where uh, we would apply our craft and jokes because we weren't in at the comedy store or the improv. So, you know, it's like where do comics who are funny, like my next guest, go to perform uh, anywhere with a mic. In some cases... They don't have a mic. So please put your hands together for one of my good friends in stand-up and life. He's one of the few people that if I quit comedy, I would still try and keep in touch with. Mr. Ed Greer. Oh, man. Thank you. That is a great, great compliment. If I quit comedy, I would try and keep up with him. That's, I mean, honestly, for from a comedian to comedian, that's fucking huge. Because half the people we know, it's just by fucking circumstance. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, uh, you know, we see hundreds of people a week, probably, or at least a hundred. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, if I quit tomorrow or if I quit after this podcast, which I might, uh, <laughs> I would talk to maybe under 10 people probably. Yeah. That yeah. I l legitimately like. Yeah, five to eight. <laughs> You're one of them. Yeah. I mean, it's when you break it down, I mean, with how many people we have to interact with, uh, you know, everyone's always got an angle. What oh, can, oh, dude. The, and the, the, the guys that can't, it's, it's funny. Like it, it, when you're an actual funny guy, people don't really think that you're on all the time, but when you're not that funny, people can really see that you're on a lot. And you know I don't I mean? like being on like a, after I do a show or a, a roast battle, uh, I'm like, I want to be quiet. Like, because I'm quiet off stage. Like, you know, I, I think people mistake that though for like not being funny sometimes. Like, I, I think I've run into that where I'm just like, I'm not about to fucking entertain you for free a whole bunch after I've just done a bunch of shows. So I'm not going to like flex that personality. But I see a lot of guys who are on a lot, they sure do worm their way into a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Well, I'm going through that right now, but uh, it, we'll keep that quiet. <laughs> So the show's not about my impeccadillos. Uh, if you'd like to get an idea of what I'm talking about, just listen to Ty's podcast, and I think we uh, break it down quite nicely. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I've known you for so long that I don't even re really remember where we met. I'm guessing maybe Liquid Zoo. Yeah, it, it might have been something like that. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been Liquid Zoo. It might have been. Um, I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't hanging out at the comedy store. Thank God. 
I think we were we were being comedians elsewhere before. We had no choice. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm saying? It's just like a lot of people meet each other at the aspirant places. Like they'll meet each other hanging out at the improv rather than being at the improv. You know what I mean? And it's like, I feel like we met each other in the trenches. So that, that was kind of better. They'd be like, oh, you're another fuck that stumbled yeah. out of the darkness that tried to come here and be good. No, no, I'm a piece of shit and I'm in a shithole and we're all pieces of shit. That's like, those seem to be the better, the better friendships that are started. Well, cause I think it's a respect thing that you, you know, like we didn't quit. <laughs> that's, like a, that's true i mean like i think in both i i won't say i mean i think i could say in both of our cases like i don't know if people even like our comedy that much but it's like hey they've they're still around yep hey they're still doing that thing they do you're still i'm still talking <laughs> about comic books you're still talking about rock and roll and wrestling you know what i mean it's like it, it at, at a certain point though it's it's funny how like if you're successful your shtick is just like Oh, so amazing. But if you if you're taking a little long for people to catch on to your stick, all of a sudden you're just some weirdo for a while. And then, you know, you hit like like you have. I mean, you know, I when I finally became a, a few years ago regular at the improv and I could go be weird and get paid all the time, that felt good. It felt good to be able to be like, okay, yeah, that shit I've been doing, people like it. Fuck you. But until that happens, you feel like a weirdo. Well, you just feel invalidated like like you know, I'm funny. Why aren't I getting spots at the comedy store, improv, or Laugh Factory? And, you know, why is this person getting spots and they couldn't follow me the other night at whatever show we were on? It's like, it's. Yeah. Well, that's that's one thing I really do. I really would like to. Uh, I wish I could have went back and cautioned myself about shit like that, though, because, like, realistically, like, I've gone on, like, road trips with, like, comics that are huge, huge, huge now, and they were huge at the time and buried them in some rough rooms but it's like la taught me how to do like i don't know how to how to wrestle a room to the ground not necessarily how to perform for a crowd of people who wanted to hear it well yeah because like if you're at the liquid zoo going up and you know you and i would usually go on toward the end for some reason the island's 32 the same Mm -hmm. uh if you can get laughs in that um environment you're good yeah, yeah, you're gonna get laughs in any environment, right? Um, and then, and then though, you see, you see the people who don't ever have to perform in those environments, and they come into this super warm room and they do their shtick, and uh, and it's okay, but it's built for that room, so it like rocks. And sometimes I, especially way back in the days, I would run into rooms where I was like, I was jumping on them like they were trying to fight me, like some midnight or one a.m. room, instead of just experiencing the fact that they were sitting down with their hands folded, ready to fucking laugh and drink it some, you know, drink it to bruising some nachos. You know what I mean? I didn't really understand how to perform for willing people. I was like a, like a comedy rapist or something for a while. You know what I mean? I do. I was talking with Jake Wiseman last night about the exact same thing where, uh, I was lucky enough to have a spot at the store and he was on after me and so I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, Hey man, my number one goal is to not walk any people. So you get a full crowd uh, or at least, yeah. you know, what was there? And he's like, dude, do your thing you know i don't mind playing to six people like it actually helps me be a better comic and i'm like i I get what he was saying uh, you know uh but i still want you to have like a few people to right uh because like the other night i was on skylar stone show in the main room completely sold out and uh i just like almost didn't know how to perform like in front of 400 people 
Because there's like 400 attentive, attentive yeah. people looking right at you, thinking like, "Wow, this the the thunders that that's gonna come out of this guy's mouth." Let me get ready. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, it's like, wow, okay. Instead of having to fucking fight for their attention, it's like that. That's the one thing about. I mean, that's to me the thing about starting to, in LA is number one, you're never a prophet in your hometown, right? They say that shit. You're never a prophet in your hometown. So if you developed your act out here. The people think that they saw you eight years ago or six years ago or seven years ago or so that a lot of people think that they saw you and it's hard to like break on through to like what, what you are now because people think they saw you or people think they've already slotted you in as local hero or whatever. But, and, and I think that's why it's uh, a lot of people who will go be a, a hero somewhere else. They'll come here and in three weeks they're passed everywhere and they're doing everything. Because, yeah. You know, they got buzz from somewhere else. And you, like I said, they're not trying to do it in their hometown. They're doing it here. I mean, it's uh, probably the worst city in the world to start in because yeah. you're like you're dealing with every famous comic in the world coming here after, mm-hmm. like you just said, they were like honing their craft in, you know, Steubensville, Ohio. You know, like Tony Hinchcliffe is a perfect example of he started in Youngstown, Ohio, mm-hmm. did his thing there, came out here when he was a little more polished than most. And now he's, you know, doing yep. what he's doing, uh, you know, same thing with. You know, Jim Jeffries is in Australia or yep. doing his thing, probably bombing a lot early on. Right. Got those out of the way, comes here, and this is who we're trying to get stage time over. Yeah. And then, you, and meanwhile, you're, you're, I know that we were bombing years ago at, at shows where people like that were working out, like the Jim Jeffries of wherever the fuck was they were they were working out their their set they were already being a good comic and we were having to like start with those type of people but i think that makes you in the end that makes you better because i've done a little traveling and uh my, my act that my act travels is not it's not about the fucking 405 you know what i mean i don't have any jokes about how stacked the 405 is and you know going going to a xyz hollywood place it seems like overall you get good performance chops here because you have to perform so fucking hard for all these jaded plastic cocksuckers have you know? Have the audience thinks that they're famous themselves. You gonna yeah. be like, like, uh, no diss, but remember you used to do to the parlor, and like everybody in there is like a fucking actor. Like literally every human from the person serving the nachos to the motherfucker in the front row, they're all actors. But they, you know, they're all famous. Yeah, well, themselves. in their minds. But yeah. then you know, you gotta like, at some point, one of them will be famous. Like I remember when Adam Devine. He wasn't even a door guy at the improv. He was in the cashier booth. Like, <laughs> dude, yeah. It, I mean, we all know. got those. Remember? I mean, uh, I, I, I think I, I told somebody this. I remember when uh, Chris D'Elia asked me if a certain small club liked to book white guys because he was struggling to get you know some spots, and now to see what he's doing and stuff. It's just, it's, it's really interesting. Dude, he's always had an amazing work ethic. Like, mm-hmm. From the get-go. You know, I first met him at an open mic. Gail, uh, a lovely lady from my past, uh, was running. And he was very quiet. He, uh, I was in the back row waiting to go on. He slid in next to me and goes, hey, do you know how he can get on? And this was like, a, a, I shouldn't say a bad open mic, but it was, you know, an open mic of, you know, questionable quality. Mm-hmm. And it's like... And he's the same way to me now, like very humble, very quiet. And, you know, it's like, I, I mean, some people don't, some people don't really forget what, what it is. I don't think I mean? he has, you know, and that, that's the, that's the interesting part about, you know, there's, there's so many narratives about, uh, oh, this guy's fake, this guy changed, but 
most people who are telling those stories suck. And they're they're the type of sucky fucker that maybe somebody had to put up with when they were famous. And now that they are famous, they don't have to. And then they'll say, like, oh, somebody changed on me. Most of the people that I know who have blown up are the, the, still the same person if you're the same person. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, I see it a lot uh, with this couple comics in Roast Battle where, you know, they're like, I think they overinflate their importance on the scene. And, uh, well, know. I mean, there's, I, I don't want to diss. See, and this is this, I don't want to start no kind of shit. But no, but I'm not everybody, asking you to. No, 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 no. But everybody knows that there are two different skill sets. Being a human stand-up comedian on stage with no, you know, uh, energy towards dissing anybody or doing anything or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You're just doing a regular old stand-up act, you know, relationships, whatever the fuck. Being able to do that well and being able to fucking just rip somebody's soul out like you guys do are two different skills, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they're, they're, obviously they're somewhat related because they're fucking microphones and jokes involved. I'm not retarded. But to say that you can do one as good as you can do the other is kind of dumb to me. I don't know. I don't know anybody who can do both of them as well as each other. I mean, there's very few. I mean, I equate it to uh, like I'm a hockey guy, but I'll say in basketball, like you look at the best. Well, you got to make it a basketball man for a bad Because you know, you're black. I mean, Let's keep it real, dude. Come on. I'm sorry. I'm getting back into my roast battle character. Come on. Nah, come on uh, fucking uh, Olympic wrestling. Go do it. No. Okay. Go ahead. But Bas- I mean, basketball. I can't <laughs> think of a hockey analogy, but like I would say in basketball, like my favorite player as a kid was Orlando Woolridge because mm-hmm. he was just this amazing dunker and he was so exciting to watch. Like fly through the air like a, a bird and then mm-hmm. just this crazy dunk but he didn't have a great jump shot right uh, you know and i would say most slam dunkers are uh the great ones aren't good shooters right and that's why they they, they use so much of their effort to get to the cup yeah, yeah. so yeah. i think in uh roast battle it, it's i've seen a lot of a a room comics not do that well because uh, it's a different skill set you're completely right and you know, and, and I, I, but back to the point we were talking about, though, there are some people who have who have had a lot of success as Rose Battlers who think now, oh, overnight I became a good comic. No, you didn't. Yeah. No, well, you fucking didn't. Those people are in for a real rude awakening <laughs> when, uh, you know, Rose Battle is not going anywhere anytime soon. But all, all shows come to an end and those uh, cocky Rose Battlers are gonna be walking the comedy store hallways uh that week after we have our final show and be like oh nobody cares about me now yeah i mean that that very well could be that oh. very well could be and some of some of them though honestly i think some of them have such a great work ethic though that they've done exactly what you're supposed to do with this sort of thing you you get on you get your little name and then when people are going okay what do you have to say roast guy you say something dope I mean, some people are going to step up to that challenge, and that's kind of exciting. Kind of like how uh, people were dissing Eliza Schlesinger or whatever. Say what you want. She, If she wasn't that good a comic when she won that shit, she got a lot better from working hard with all those gigs she got afterwards. You know what I'm saying? And I think a, a lot of people should take, a, to take that as like an example. You know what I mean? Like, be good enough to get your shot, and then work really hard, and then next thing you know, nobody's questioning why you are where you are. I mean, even Dad Fan got better. Like, uh, I mean, he even admitted himself that he only had like 15 minutes right? uh, when he won the first season. And then he's asked to do an hour. And see what we're talking about uh, in that case is like another skill set. 
I mean, people have asked me why I don't really fuck with Rose Battle. Number one, I don't want to be a fat nigger in that room. Oh, I just, oh, oh. I just really don't. <laughs> I just really don't. But other than that, though, it is. I recognize that there are dudes that will rip your soul out and they they wake up every morning, do a thousand Rose Battle crunches and they're in they're in shape to fuck your ass up. And I respect that too much to be stumbling up in there being like, yeah, what's up? But, you know, comic book reference, blah, blah, blah. You know, fuck that. I'm not I'm not about to roll up in there and get savaged by dudes. Yeah, I but see, I see the skill set. But you're good enough to rebut, like, which is how I win every battle. Like, Oh, yeah, definitely. Because you have to know. Um, uh, and I don't want to make this too roast battle heavy today, right, right. but like you have to know where you're going to get hit and a lot oh of, yeah but you're honest with yourself and you're not fat dude you're a big dude but you're not fat. <laughs> well I, i'm fat enough to be fat in a comedy uh situation certainly well, but but i'm i'm saying that and i'm not kamala quite yet i, I i'll probably get it under control legs. yeah i get it under control before i'm kamala style that's what he uh, thought <laughs> Well, dude, I mean, I, dude, he started. I want to know. I mean, I know you know everything. I'm obsessed about, with him. Yeah, I, I know you know everything about Kamala. I want to know some more stuff about some of the uh, the older, like uh, J- Junkyard, uh, Junkyard Dog, Bad News Brown. Like, where, what were those dudes' stories getting in there? Because they were like the epitome of let's be scared of black people of their time for, yeah. for that audience. I mean, to be a black wrestler in the 70s and 80s. It was uh, like uh, it was tough because you know they didn't want to use too many black wrestlers because they wanted like that one token guy, mm-hmm. so you couldn't have Kamala and Bad News Brown like on the same card because it's like, well, we want them to be afraid of one black guy. <laughs> we don't want the hate because Bad News Brown was like a legit. I think he was a judo champion in one of the Olympics. Like he was legit. That's ill because yeah, yeah, his move the uh, the ghetto blaster, right? Yeah. Uh, that was always, uh, I mean, I, I, I used to talk about it on stage. I'd be like, uh, even as a kid, I thought that was fucked up. You know what I mean? Oh my God. That guy comes out, his move is the ghetto blaster. And it's sort of a weird cowardly kick to the back of the head. I mean, mean? well, I don't know. We could have another podcast on black stereotypes (laughs) in the world of pro wrestling. I mean, oh, oh, this is the fight they were talking about. We're looking at ESPN, Robin Lopez and Serge Ibaka, both uh, centers or power forwards for different teams. Yeah, they're having a real, real melee. We got to, yeah, for those of you who don't know, you know, inappropriate Earl is uh, audio only, but just to keep the guests visually stimulated, (laughs) I always have ESPN on with the sound turned down, uh, you know, just so people don't have to look at my face the whole time. Uh, and right now there's a nice little brawl going on. Well, yeah, between. it's a, it's harkening back to the old basket brawls. But the one thing I really, I'm really mad that people think that basketball players are the people who are going to really have a fight. Cause number one, they're the, they're the, the least of the physical athletes. I'm not saying they're the least physical athletes. I'm saying they're the least physical of the physical sports where you actually have contact with people. And number two, their hands are like really useful for what the fuck they're trying to do. If you fucking break your hand or your forearm, like uh, there was a Turkish guy on, on a fucking uh, go on um, Oklahoma city. He, he got mad after a play, sits his big Turkish ass down and punches a chair and breaks his fucking forearm. And he's not able to play for like eight weeks. Well, I don't think they realize how strong they are. Like, right. Uh, and like their arms are too long, you know, like, right. Hockey players are great fighters because, like, you know, they've grown up fighting. Like, basketball players, there's skirmishes in basketball, but 
And it's mostly pushing. I mean, if, yeah. if there was a pushing contest, I'll put basketball players up there with anybody but NFL linemen. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you know, the power that they would generate from the, their length of, uh, yeah. would be. Uh, but it's not a pushing contest. It's a fight. And but, uh, they don't they don't really fight. Well, I mean, NBA players are like, it's really weird. Like, they're great athletes. But, like, I used to work out at the gym with Orlando Woolridge. And uh, he asked me to spot him once on the bench press. And he couldn't bench press 225 pounds once. Wow. And you look at his body, and I'm not gay. I mean, I love women. Uh, <laughs> but he had an amazing body. Like, maybe the most perfectly sculpted body i've ever seen on a man it was just like looks like he was made like from uh like a superman movie he couldn't bench press 225 once huh well i i think it's a lot that they don't use i don't know maybe uh, does they say that kevin durant who's like almost seven feet tall he's uh he's a spindly little fuck but anyway when he was coming out he was like 6'10 maybe he grew after he was a, he was a pro he couldn't pinch 185 one time at the combine not <laughs> once and he was like top 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 jeff pick i think he got picked number two yeah i mean Great. uh it, it's but but looking at like orlando Wall, which i thought this guy's gonna bench 305 like it's nothing and uh it's just genetic i guess there's a difference between strength and just uh genetic muscular to you know frame you have uh you know i'm sure Vladi divats could he's probably strong as an ox Oh yeah, dude, Vladdy Divox. Oh my God, I, I definitely remember Vladdy Divox from back in the days. Best thing he ever did was get traded for Kobe. Yeah, thank you, Vladdy. <laughs> that that was he was just good enough to get traded for the draft rights to a, a teenage guard, and they hadn't drafted a teenage guard in like ever. You know what I mean? It was always big dudes. But Man, um, you know. I, I don't know. As far as what we're talking about, as far as uh, comedy and shit, I I personally think that uh, comedy's taught me a lot of stuff about like who you are like you go through your if you don't blow up by the time you're five years in or something you have a weird personality shift that happens and then around 10 years you go like okay i'm a real comic i go do stuff i get paid occasionally but i'm not on tv ah fuck and then now that you're on tv does it feel different that you've been on like actual on cool tv doing some cool shit does it does it feel different does it feel like validating or does it feel like that whole like they say that if you get something, it's because you were over ready for it for five years. You were ready for it for five or six years before you got it. I mean, I think in my case, it was almost like uh, to take it back to the wrestling, uh, you know, uh, world. Like there's a wrestler named Samoa Joe, and he's been an amazing wrestler for like 18 years and never really made it to the big leagues. Mm. Uh, and now he's in the WWE and he's finally getting his just due. And I think in my case, it was like people were like, oh, my God, Earl finally fucking made, not made it, but like, you know, was on Comedy Central four straight nights, you know, after 14 years of 16 years of never being on TV once. Uh, it made me want it more. You know, you wait mm -hmm. so long for it, uh, even though it wasn't stand up. It was, you know, I, I don't really like doing roast battle uh, from the standpoint of, uh I don't like saying mean things about people, but you know, when you're offered the opportunity to be on comedy central, you're like, who's the cocksucker I'm going against first. Uh, fuck you, buddy. Uh, I was going to ask you about how, how does it feel to be perceived as sort of a mean guy and to have a mean guy inside of you? Like you do have a very mean guy inside of you. Um, I, I have, I would say, um, 
I have a very, uh, it's a, a side of Earl. Like I'm talking about myself in the third person. I did go out full LeBron, motherfucker. Go full yeah. LeBron. <laughs> I, there's a side of me that very few people see that's uh, vindictive, that is, uh, um, I don't know, it's re like it's revenge uh, or, uh, re uh, you know, like if I feel you've wronged me, I lock a vendetta, in. A, a vendetta state of mind. I, I, if you've wronged me and very few people have, uh, but a, a few have uh, recently, uh, I lock in on you. Yeah. And, you know, targets are set. <laughs> and uh, how I do it, like. Like I used, I still play hockey, you know, every Sunday in my little league, and it's a very competitive league. Uh, a few NHL players play in the summer, oh, like cool. to uh, stay in shape, stay in shape, or whatever. And uh, so there's not necessarily fights, but there's a lot of stick work and and stuff like that. And uh, when someone slashes me, uh, I never slash them back right away. <laughs> <laughs> you build it up. Now, 10 years ago, I'd slash them back instantaneously. But now I'm all about the mental warfare. I might wait five games. I might wait a year. Uh, but I always get them. Like, <laughs> like I slashed a guy the other day for something he did like a year ago to me. And he's like, Earl, what the fuck was that? I'm like, remember about a year ago when we went in the corners and you slashed me in the calf? Now we're even. Oh, dude, that that is a perfect segue into what I'm about to say. And I don't give a fuck if it makes me sound like a Hollywood douche or whatever. Now I feel exactly like you. And in, in my regard is like behind the scenes, like I'm, I'm I fucking pitched a show that's more or less supposedly basically bought. But let's say that doesn't even happen. There's other two other fucking irons in the fire that seem to be pretty fucking hot. And I'm in a position where I'm able to pick like who I want to work with for the, to put the teams together for these projects and yada, yada, yada. And I'm telling you, man, there's people who have recently fucked up. There's people who fucked up a long time ago, but yeah, dude, the, the, when you're, when you're able to pick people and you would have picked somebody, but about a year ago, they just fucked you over real hard. It, it does feel decent to be like, well, that person isn't on the list. I it, mean, I feel bad, uh, at, to a degree, like, uh, you know, I'm all about the Tony Robbins, forgive and forget. Oh, I, I, as as an idea, I am too. But then people just, I, I feel like I feel like one of those Kane and Kung Fu, or what, one of those just like, I mean, I got some martial skill, but I'm just plowing this field and I'm enjoying this wife. And then the motherfuckers come and they they chop her head off and they kill my kids, and I got to unleash all this shit on them. And I feel like th that's how you, far you have to take me. And there's people who have gone that far recently. And it's just like, damn, dude, like, what the fuck is your problem? Well, that, you just, that right, at, right as I'm about to be something. Did do that four years ago when it would have no repercussions. You know what I'm saying? But, like, to to do it right now is just stupid on some of these people's part. And it, that and I know it sound, makes it sound like a fucking vindictive Hollywood douche. But it's like, I remember those stories about fucking uh, uh, Martin Lawrence destroying Chris Rock and uh opening sets and stuff and chris rock seeing martin lawrence up for something and being like nah, i don't want him it, it shit like that happens you know oh what I'm dude shit I, like that happens so for me i wouldn't do that to anybody if somebody's a great comic i would never you know deny them an opportunity ever even if i fucking hate them but at the same time i'm not going to go out of my way to work with some of these people that i i thought i was going to make it with quote unquote right you know what i'm saying because they were such cocksuckers and this last stretch you know what I'm saying? I'm working on my TV show, so I can't do your garbage. 
and now you're mad at me. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, that part sucks. That part well, sucks. I mean, you should be nice to everyone just because you should be nice to everyone, but especially in our business, like like, like the Adam Devine example, I'm sure I can only imagine the comics who treated him like shit because they thought, oh, here's this loser. He's not even a door guy. He's just taking our tickets. Or mm -hmm. And now look at Adam Devine. You know, mm -hmm. he's just someone who could literally make one phone call and say hey uh, my friend ed greer is really funny put him on at midnight and it's over and you're on at midnight tomorrow tomorrow uh, and the others yeah, and there's a lot of people and i feel i feel good that over the course of time everybody that's like that i've treated well and I'm, i've got a good track record of being nice to cool people who just so happened to be very talented and do a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? I remember when people like Jeremiah, I remember Jer when Jeremiah first came around. I remember when Gerard first came around, you know what I'm saying? That's how dating, dating myself, like a motherfucking carbon, <laughs> like a T-Rex skull. You know what I'm saying? Like you remember when people come around and like most of the time you're cool to the kids that are going to be cool. It's just the way, like I used to give Gerard sweaters and shoes because he was like driving around some shitty car and I, uh, I was just like, this guy's cool. I've got some extra clothes that I, I don't really wear. And he like, he almost like cried one night when I gave him a couple sweaters. And like, I didn't give them to him because like, this guy's gonna be a star. He can put me in a show. Right. And you know, I, I'm sure at some point down the road that will pay off. Uh, maybe not even through him. Maybe uh, it's just that energy. That that it is. that energy is gonna literally that energy pays off. And that's I, that's what I found in my. And my little short, uh, well, my long career of trying to be a stand-up and my short career of trying to be in TV, it's like so many people that I was nice to on the way up in stand-up can do so much more for me in the world of of TV or movies or something. Yeah, you know, I mean. You know, and it's just, but, be, but being cool to them at open mic seven years ago is what's opened up some of these things that are happening right now. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, and that's why I know karma is super fucking real. You know what I, mean? oh, I believe in that big time. Uh, and I've always kind of believed in it, but like just through doing comedy 16 years, you see like, you know, examples of it every week, you know, of people who get, you, you know, like Willie Hunter was Gerard's friend through thick and thin. Yep. Now he's a writer on the show. Yep. Uh, you know, and I see it in the reverse too, you know, uh, you see, you know, I was in, uh, I won't say the network's name, but you know, it's like five or six years ago. Uh, just shooting the shit with a few comics and one comic was an A, a triple A comic in terms of power. And he used to be an open micer. Mm -hmm. Got into an argument with another open micer uh, at the Hotwired Cafe, Mike. <laughs> in Valley Village, which you can't get any shittier of an open mic than that room. Because it was an open mic. It was a speed freak uh recovery bar or uh coffee bar so all these addicts would go there they'd watch the comedy and, and hang out have meetings and uh, these two comics got into a fight a verbal fight and you know four years later uh, this guy's in the room they're taking submissions for a stand-up show and just so happens that the other comics tape was mm -hmm. on the desk and the triple a comic was like nah 
and that's that's what it is. That's that's the book's name. The power of nah. That's what that's what it is. But I mean, four years later, uh, both comics probably forgot about the other and and the beef. But then the other comics seen the comics name on that VHS uh, <laughs> submission, and that comic will never know that that's probably the reason and he didn't get the gig. That's why. And and then and then but then you know. When you get into like, I'm officially going to come up on I think 11 or 12 years. Like, it's funny you keep you keep telling people it's eight or 10 because you feel you really feel like that's what it is, and then it gets longer than that, and you're just like, ah, oh, fuck. So I, I'm coming up on I think I think I'm in the 11th year right now, and I'm coming up on 12. And it's just one of those things where you're just like, damn, dude, like you maybe you didn't work as hard as you, you know, cause I don't know your, your situation. My personal situation was I wasn't ever really struggling to the point where I focused myself totally on any one thing. And I was always drawing and I was always doing all this different shit and comedy was just one part of my shit. And I just feel like now that I can really put myself into comedy and do my writing and producing and shit like that, it's like, it's, I've got enough money to just chill out and really work on those things. I feel like things are starting to happen for me faster. But I just feel like, I don't know, is it, is it all worth nothing if you got any, if, if you didn't get anything out of doing comedy this long, what would you feel? Like if there was literally nothing happening other than people in the city thought you were funny, would it be enough? Uh, for me, it would be just because I love doing stand up. Like I get a sexual high from doing it. Uh, I mean, you, certainly the longer you do it and then you see some of the people you started with. Uh, become a little more successful than you and you're like well jesus i'm not necessarily funnier than them because mm-hmm. comedy's subjective like sometimes it's because you think that and this is what a lot of comics think you think it's because you're more consistent than them you know what i mean even if you're not just doing the same old crap just you going up on stage grabbing a mic more consistently good stuff happens than some of these guys that are famous when you see them perform live you're just like wow does it mean nothing that I'm this consistently funny, regardless of what material I do, regardless of what the milieu is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, why is that not being rewarded? That that is a lot of comics thing. I just hate I hate the comics who like do good like one or two places, and or in one or two types of environments, and they think they should have the world. You know what I mean? Especially if they've only been doing their one or two types of environments for a long time, then they feel like they should be farther along. I feel like, I mean, like I said, not to put myself up or yourself up, but like we did comedy everywhere. Oh, yeah. Like everywhere you could possibly, every type of, you know, from rednecks to hood rooms to whatever you did everywhere and then said, okay, I'm a comic. And now I can go, okay, I'll go to the comedy store. I'll go to the improv. I'll be able to represent my brand that I made over years. But I just feel like there's a lot of people who go like, you know, who go to the comedy store. The first thing they want to do is go to the comedy store or the improv. Like the first comedy thing they want to do is go there and try to get up. And it's like, just uh, me and me and uh, a comic uh, used to know Chris. Remember Chris? Chris Dunham. We used to talk about trying to get good in secret, like get good on the periphery, and then come smash them in the face. And I remember when I first started coming to to audition for Tommy, I was ready for Freddie. My very first time at the comedy store, I fucking kicked some ass. And I didn't get past him <laughs> really quickly. Well, but, I think uh, I know why. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you know, but I kicked some ass and it was a definite sort of injustice almost from the beginning. So I feel like that's why he eventually, you know, passed me to at least get off of the fucking mic and get out of the 
the plebe doom. You know what I'm saying? To get out of the 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 you know the popcorn machine. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I I never even got on potluck or friends and family ever. I'm still trying to get on it. That's fucking hilarious. And I still can't get on it. That, see, that's hilarious. I, how bad a white man do you have to be to not <laughs> to not be to liked not enough? Tommy like, put Tommy, you like, <laughs> that's, oh. that's incredible. I'm a, he must have caught me doing some kind of I love slavery set or something. Well. <laughs> put me up. But uh, yeah, I started. He started giving me spots, and uh, and it and it persisted through Adam, which I felt. I feel great about that because, you know, a lot of people like that Tommy like that, you know, certain other people don't like. Well, I mean, Adam's straight up like that's what I love about him. Uh, You know, and we're friends, so I'm not trying to, you know, some people might sound like I'm kissing ass, but like uh, he'll tell you good, bad or indifferent what Mm -hmm. the process is. Whereas Mm -hmm. Tommy, uh, who I've had on the show twice and, uh, you know, I often point to the first episode I did with him as if you're going to listen to one episode of this show, that's the one because it's an amazing insight into a man's mind. Yep. Uh, not, nothing. Don't listen to it because of me. I said about 20 words in three hours. No, and, and, and what you what you experienced on that episode is straight up what it was like to go up to him while he was sitting in the booth right. and ask him about your set or ask him about anything that extemporaneous just free flow of ideas and 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 just fables and <laughs> scenarios and, and and you know uh yeah reminiscences that's what would you that's what you would get if you asked him how did you do yeah you'd get like this almost ultimate warrior like speech <laughs> of like what the fuck are you talking about and the crimson seas right. united oh. with the moonlit dawn yeah. it's like what the, okay what the fuck is like but uh, the warrior had this great speech about 911 in 1992 like warrior was on top of it like he was like <laughs> seriously it's the scariest speech cuz he's like uh Hulk Hogan dispose of the pilots take down the cockpit doors and fly the planes into the towers. Like it was like Whoa. so like, Oh <laughs> shit, this guy's really ahead of the time. Wow. But Tommy would give you that. Hey Tommy, what'd you think of my said? Well, you must move to the stage of the light. And it's like, <laughs> what? I was just doing dick jokes. Uh, <laughs> but like, I think that's why, uh, uh you know, Tommy was like so vilified up there was because he would never give you a straight answer. He'd just bullshit you. You know, he he would tell people like me who he had no intention of passing ever that, oh, just come up, hang out, you know, and like hang out. Yeah. And see, and I got, and that, that was the thing that was so scary when I would, when I would go up there before, uh, before I got off the, you know, the mic situation, uh, it was, it was scary having him say that because you had heard so many comics say that that's what he said. So it's like, if he's saying that to them and they're never getting up ever and he's saying it to me and it seems like I'm getting up, am I buying it to the same bullshit? I, maybe I am. You know what I mean? And then, so I, that was really scary. That was a really scary time. Well, it's like, uh, you know, when you hear he, he would tell like Rob Schneider to come up on Sundays and Mondays, this is when there was uh, two nights of open mics and potluck, uh, to work out it's like uh what (laughs) (laughs) well dude do you remember the classic story of uh fucking uh chris rock comes up and says he wants to go up but zombie's got two or three 
you know, like basically door guys, sorry, but basically door guy level guys, or like I graduated door guy guys that he has to get up before Chris rock. And, and, and it's just to, to see him make those type of decisions, let you know how the, what a cult of personality, you know, Colonel Kurtz type yeah. of situation. It was up there See on the river. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like a, it was apocalypse now up there with the, the guy. Yeah. I mean, there's so many stories like that where like, you know, he told uh, Hannibal Burris to hang out and <laughs> told Bert Kreischer to work the parking lot. Like Bert Kreischer, who's literally on the road 50 weeks of the year, headlining, destroying everywhere. He, I mean, like he, that guy kills. Yeah. And you're telling him to get a job and park, uh, you know, my car. <laughs> I say what uh and you know Ro the whole rogan thing was mm -hmm. like you know but adam like reaches out to the industry like you know because he's smart i mean the, the comedy store is the hottest club in the kind country. of the world right now yeah, right so. this instant it's the hot you can't if you decide to just mosey up there and see some comedy it might be sold out you know what i mean you gotta you gotta it's a plan plan to go to the comedy store because there's a lot of places you know there's three rooms that are sold out sometimes, sometimes. yeah and i mean like you know nights that under tommy were like the room was literally dark mm -hmm. uh are now sold out you know and it's like he's adam's got so many like big name people coming there like you have to have two shows going at the same time because it's like the you know, you have to put the the TV comics and the A level comics on in the power spots. Mm -hmm. You know, because if it's just one room, you can have Jazzlenet going on at one. <laughs> you know, you go have me going on at one. <laughs> you know, and I'm happy for the spot. Uh, oh, I fucking love. I kind of i've I've d done a couple shows. Like I'll do like an eight o'clock show and a ten o'clock show, and then I'll come up to the store and I'll watch people's one o'clock and twelve thirty sets and stuff, and be like, "Ah, fuck! I'm a regular at this other club. I'm not a regular at the store yet. I just come look at some of these regulars do their shit." And some of the environments are so interesting at that. To talk to four Australian guys and like six dudes from New Zealand who hate the Australian guys, and then four stripper bitches, and then some of Don's crew. And that's those mm. are the people you're talking to at twelve thirty, one one thirty, whatever. That's that's an environment for your ass. That's that's a comedy test. That's a comedy crucible. Yeah, because when you're performing, like for me especially, you know, like a lot of my references are '80s based and about shows nobody watched, and <laughs> you know, so someone from Australia, they're not going to know Miami Vice. So you can't do. I can't do that joke. Like mm. they're not going to know who Dolph Lundgren is, and <laughs> you know. But when they do, it's fucking magical. Like, well, is is that the thing that makes us be stand up friends? Besides all the all the all that uh that dingy garbage we went through earlier, is it is it the fact that we both like? Things that are basically popular now but that were like niche nerd shit when we were kids. Well, I think we both uh, like I think what makes us likable as comics, uh, not only to fellow comics, but to, to crowds is like the crowd gets off on you talking about cartoons and superheroes, even though they may not like superheroes or cartoons. Same thing, you know, like last night I did uh a 10 minute chunk on the movie Cobra by Stallone. Oh fuck yeah, I wish I could have seen that. I would have I would have done that the most. I rarely kill. I mean, I I do well, but like I rarely like dude, this for some reason this material was resonating with his young crowd. <laughs> 
And essentially, I'm not going to do material, but right, like, right. Uh, it was I go to bars and pick up chicks only using lines from the movie Cobra. <laughs> and, you know, I had this girl in the front row. She's hot, huge tits. And I'm like, you pick up on me and I'll throw out these lines. And like, so she would say, hey, uh, what's your name? You're kind of cute. I'm like, this is where the law stops. And I start. <laughs> and it's just stupid. <laughs> But like, dude, I fucking love that movie. Oh, I'm obs- I have these weird obsessions, like with Kamala and like with the movie Cobra, because it was loosely the script from Beverly Hills Cop. Right, right, right. That that was their attempt to. Uh, I mean, basically, they they had developed Beverly Hills Cop to with an inch of its life, making it like a hard R, super action fest to try to make it okay for him to do. Right, and they ended up having to go all the way back around and do something more, you know, comedic. Where they got Eddie Murphy, and that's why half the movie's fucking improvised, is is Eddie Murphy fixing it from how much development they did in the direction of making it. Right. You and know, something that Stallone could be in. So he just basically takes that framework, goes over, makes his own movie. But I just, I, the movie is just <laughs> the best lines in that movie. It, it just like with the bad, the typical bad guy with the trench coat and bad skin and greasy hair uh, by the way he's in a bud light commercial right now and i love seeing a guy get work you know? <laughs> that's, that's that's lundgren-esque yeah i do i love seeing you know the guy you we talk about slinging it out for years this guy just had, that's cobra was what uh 30 years ago yeah and this guy's still working and uh but when stallone breaks through and he's gonna shoot the guy and the guy's i'm gonna blow this place up man he's like go ahead I don't shop here. <laughs> just like I can watch Cobra a hundred times and never get bored. Oh, uh, uh, dude, it's it's got different stuff in it each time. Like how like when when in that grocery store scene where like fucking uh he's getting shot at and it shoots some beers and he yeah. grabs a beer and starts drinking it. It was total product placement. <laughs> because as he's clearly sticking the Coors logo right in the camera lens. <laughs> Then behind him is a huge Pepsi display <laughs> that should not have been where the beer was being sold. Oh, not at all. It was like a confluence of product placement, a perfect storm of oh, product yeah. placement. And then like in Stallone's apartment, like he, I think it was in Venice. It looked like it was on the beach somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Like out his uh, patio is a huge Pepsi sign on the side of the building that's neon, that's glowing. It's like, no one lives in a building with a neon Pepsi sign. Dude, that uh, was that was a fucking amazing. I love all the eighty shit. Like, and that was the funny thing. I I I love I love the invincibility of eighties heroes. It was like it, they they almost never until Die Hard, they weren't ever really in trouble. Right. They 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 had their trials and tribulations, but mostly they just kicked some fucking ass. Like uh like uh I was telling somebody uh I, I was at a fucking uh Thanksgiving dinner and I guess some nerds were there and they were saying some wannabe nerds were there and they were saying some shit like uh yeah man well uh let's take protagonists from one movie and put them into another movie and they were like they were saying so that let's say who's tougher like uh is John McClane from Die Hard tougher or is Rambo tougher and I'm like bitch. If, if Rambo was in the Nakatomi Towers, that movie would last 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. I'd get that fucking butcher knife out and just start fucking killing Hans and his Dude, brother Carl. They'd be poking around the offices. He'd come out of a pile of post-it notes, perfectly camouflaged, and slash their necks. Get the fuck, get the fuck out of here. But, I mean, like, those movies worked because the, the bad guys were so good. Like, yeah. you know, Cobra, that guy, and I've tried to get him on the podcast, but he probably doesn't want to, you know, 
doesn't want to talk about Cobra 30 years later. Like, <laughs> Brian- that dude was hardcore looking, though. I, th- I thought he should have got more villain roles because he had, like, more, obviously more acting chops than somebody like the great Dolph Lundgren. Well, his name's Brian E. Thompson. If you're listening, Mr. Thompson, I would be humbled and honored. I met him once at the fucking supermarket on uh, Olympic, right by Nakatomi Plaza, coincidentally. <laughs> There's a Ralph's on Olympic, and... Uh, I I don't get starstruck often, but he's so uh, like not unique looking, but he's he's definitely you know it's him. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And so I went up to him and I just he he kind of sensed I was going to say something stupid, and I'm like, even the law is civilized. You won't <laughs> kill me, will you, pig? He, <laughs> he's just looking at me like I'm like Cobra and the. The final scene, and he, he kind of laughed. You know. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. If you came up to me quoting a line from a movie I did 30 years ago that I'm darn sure probably don't remember, I'd I would be, be creeped out. I would be I don't, creeped out. I, I, it's not the first time. Like, Have you ever seen the movie Lethal Weapon? Yeah, of course. I mean, I... <laughs> have, you, have you ever drank water? Have you ever breathed oxygen? Uh, <laughs> but do you remember the scene in Lethal Weapon? where the guy's buying the heroin at the nightclub uh-huh. and uh, they uh, he starts freaking out going, you guys are mercenaries, man. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> and the bad guy, the older bad guy's like, no, you're not wrong. And they bring in Gary Busey and they do the arm, tr- with the, the lighter. The lighter, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm at 7-Eleven a couple months ago and I see the guy who was buying the heroin. Like... <laughs> His name's Ed O'Ross, and he's like a huge character actor. And I don't like saying character actor because I don't like saying people are open micers. I think it's a dismissive right. Uh, term. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what: actors who are sitting in a house with a fucking fat ass pool in the back and dual levels and shit, they know the difference between character actor and loser. Well, he they almost ran do. me over the other day in his Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, so you know what I mean. Ed O'Ross is doing quite nice, but he was buying like I don't know cigarettes and some I don't know candy or something, and it was like the bad guy from Cobra. He knew I knew who he was, <laughs> and he just looked at me. It's like hello. I'm like. Do you smoke? You're lighter. You, do you smoke? If you try anything, you'll have to talk to Mr. Joshua. And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, lethal weapon, dude. Uh, see, I'm telling you, that that's that's that, I, that would creep me the fuck out. The two times that I've seen them, they're black versions of those sort of guys. Maybe more star power in my, in my case. Like I, I, saw, I saw Spike Lee. I saw Spike Lee out somewhere. And... I literally, I don't, I'm not trying to be a dickhead. I don't really like his movies that much, but as a black human being in this country, I recognize his contribution and it just choked me up a little bit when I saw him. Like I literally couldn't say anything except spike. And I raised my fist. That was it. That was, that was the black power. I I don't, I I don't even know. It was a little bit too fey to be a real black power fist because it was just like my hand was stuck. And I raised it up to kind of say hi. That's what the fist was more like. And it was just like, Spike. And I did that. And then I saw fucking Keith David at the Grove or something. You know what I'm saying? Or on Ventura. It was on Ventura. I saw Keith David 
on Ventura near the fucking five guys or whatever. Right. And uh, I literally, I was going to quote some, they live or do something. I just ended up acknowledging that I knew who he was with like eye contact, but then leaving him the fuck alone. See, I can't do that. That was, that was, but that's my style. Like I will literally go, I'll, I'm the dude who will see Quentin Tarantino wearing like a fucking fright wig or something, trying not to be seen and be like, yeah, man. Or, you know what I mean? Do something to let you know, I gotcha. I know you but I'm not going to fuck with you. That's like my move. I mean, I just, I can't help myself, Uh, but I try and be cool. Like I see the bad guy from Delta force every day when I'm walking my dog, when I, you know, I split my dog with uh, Gail and, uh, he eats at a very, (laughs) he eats at a particular restaurant every day. And I walk by it with Lois and, uh, he came out one day and he's in Pulp Fiction. He's like beyond a legendary character actor robert forrester yeah 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 and uh, i just saw him one day and he's coming out and i'm walking by i'm like hey man be an honor to shake that bad guy from delta force's hand and like delta force is probably so low on his radar of films he's done right. but he was cool you know right i mean my favorite memory of robert forrester was uh watching jackie brown with an all black audience and seeing when he kisses uh fucking uh when he kisses pam greer at the end half the black audience mostly women were like oh and half the black audience men were like fuck that shit you know because we're all thinking you know pam greer she's hot we we know this relationship's happening but they didn't like it a lot of a lot of the brothers didn't like it for some reason because they don't want to see a white boy kissing kissing coffee or whatever yeah i guess but that was a unique uh experience in forrester is fucking he he had a nice little resurgence maybe not to a travolta level but well, I he, think he came back a lot. Pulp Fiction really raised the bar, and oh, this guy's a good actor. Like otherwise, he was kind of stuck doing movies like Delta Force, which it, the first one's pretty good. Uh, you know, I mean, Jackie Brown, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, there was like Jackie Brown, um, Pulp Fiction, like really put him back on. The, oh wow, this guy's fucking. Who's this guy? You know, he's like that typical guy before those movies came out. It was like I kind of know this guy, but like. Yeah, not really. And then, well, did, have you seen that? Have you seen that? It's like a Netflix thing of like, a, I know that guy or, or, or there's no. the guy or some shit like that. It's about character actors. And it's literally about like all their trials and tribulations. Like they, they tell these weird stories of like, when I got my part on Law and Order, I had to literally borrow like $2 to take the bus over to my yeah. audition. And then da, 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 da. And then I got it. And then that was enabled me to get my house which I later lost because I didn't have enough work. You know what I mean? They they just tell these stories of like the, the highs and lows of getting some of these dope ass character roles or like, if you're like the dude who goes, ah, McGillicuddy, uh, this body seems to be too cold to blah, 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 blah. If you're that guy, you get a house, you get to have a house, you get to be everything that you'd want to be. And on NCIS, the guy who's the doctor is balling. You know what I mean? But between those roles, it's like fucking dinner theater and garbage a lot of times. Or like, you're the bad guy from uh, Crocodile versus Sharktopus or whatever the fuck. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I uh, used to date this girl who worked at a, uh, a money manager's office for, like, you know, mid-level actors. And uh, one day I see the the fat de- or the heavyset detective from Miami Vice walk in. And <laughs> his name's Michael Talbot. He played uh, Stan Switek in Miami Vice. He was in all five seasons, every episode. You would think that guy would be set for life. And he, he was in a lot of movies in the 80s. 
And uh, yeah, but life is long, as Chris Rock said. Yeah, he Chris Rock like four times this podcast. Uh, fuck, yeah, life is long. But he had to move back to Idaho. He couldn't get work. Yeah, like you think a guy from Miami Vice? Look at Philip Michael Thomas. Like, what's he done since that? Like, right. look at Time Mac from The Last Dragon. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you think he'd be set for life? But I mean, you know, it's a tough business. Like, uh, you know, look at David Caruso. Like, he, he's set for life just because of CSI Miami. But like, you know, he leaves NYPD Blue uh, to do movies, and he's a great actor. Dude, that's another one I saw when I went through my Rambo phase recently, which is why I guess I just mentioned Rambo a little while ago. But like, he was great in the very first First Blood. He that's- was like the only guy who was like, dude. What the fuck are we doing out here? He's going to fucking kill us. Why are we doing this? He was the voice of reason in that movie. And he must have been 23, mm-hmm. something like that. Michael Talbot was in. He was the other. He was like the second best sheriff in that. Like he was the heavy set guy that David Caruso and him were always arguing about, like how mistreated Rambo was. And Oh, and yeah, I know what you're talking about. He, now. I know exactly. A little chubby. I mean, uh, and, um, so like he ended up getting caught in like a leg trap right or something. Yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> so that fucking spike strip uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. nut level spike strip yeah, coming out yikes. of nowhere <laughs> but like that those two guys are like the typical like okay they're in rambo david caruso probably got nypd blue right after that or i don't know uh, but relatively soon after rambo michael talbot uh I think my first season of Miami Vice was 83, 84. Well, like so. Rambo was in the 80s, so I don't know what Caruso probably did for that. I mean, he he did a bunch of shit probably until like, I I think he had to age into his like ginger face. I'm like, not trying to be disrespectful to gingers or whatever, but you know what I'm saying? Like he was like a young sort of uh, Ron Howardy ginger. Right. And then he aged into this sort of like evil leprechaun type of guy that could like take his glasses off with authority and shit. You know what I mean? I think there was a nice almost 20 year gap in between him being like a charismatic young actor and being like a dude that could hold down like a, a show show in the nineties. Cause then that shit started in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, the- Cause I know he was in that uh, Michael Mann uh, show crime story, which was so good. Uh, oh dude. Michael Mann is the shit. I fucking have watched every single thing that Michael Mann has done. Even that move, that, that TV movie that turned into heat. Right. It's like literally beat LA, beat. LA, what the fuck? LA, LA cop stories yeah, and yeah. shit. But yeah, that thing is, it even has, it has scenes from heat with yeah. worse actors and it's hilarious. Like, like to watch the beat for beat, same scene, but with an inferior actor on a TV budget. It's yeah. just hilarious. I mean, crime story. It was, I think it was Dice's first big break because uh, he wasn't doing comedy. He was like a character in uh, Buffalo Bill mm-hmm. for uh, Ted Levine, from, who was in Heat as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, with the he's a I snatched the information out of the air. Like no, that's not everywhere. him. That's another character. No, wasn't that? I, I thought you were talking about Red Dragon, not the Red Dragon, the Manhunter, the bad guy in Manhunter. Is right, that was that guy? guy yeah, uh, who's in like tons of stuff. How do you find all this stuff? You know, it's just all out there. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his name because uh, he's he's a great bad guy. Uh, and uh, but I, what I love about Michael Mann is he uses a lot of the same people. That's like a repertory company. I love it. Um, like Crime Story was uh, he had met this guy who was a real life jewel thief uh, who he had. Uh, in, he was a technical advisor on the James Con movie Thief. Uh, which is oh, great. Dude, that's that's Michael Mann. Honestly, that that's almost Michael Mann at the top of his powers. Just because it's like so gritty and weird, 
like like the the, the it's like a uh, the soundtrack is by like Vangelis or whatever the fuck. It's it sounds weird. It looks weird. It's a really efficient movie. Yeah, but I mean, Crime Story was just too much money to make. It was like a million bucks an episode because it was of yeah. Vegas. Uh, it was in the fifties, and so they they had to have all fifties cars, and like it was so good. But uh, that's where Car- that's where I first knew of Caruso, other than Rambo, right? And then uh, NYPD Blue, and then he left to do I think Jade and Kiss of Death, and just didn't happen for him. Yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely, there is a qualitative difference between his him and his as a movie star and other movie star movie stars which is weird because like i don't like to acknowledge that like you're meant for tv or you're meant for movies i think that's a bunch of, a bunch of bullshit most of the time but the movies he chose to star in weren't very weren't very good but i loved kiss of death <laughs> it was a remake but like kiss, kiss of death tried really hard i watched it at like three in the morning one day great and cast yeah yeah you look at the cast and you think that this motherfucker might be a world beater but then you see like some of the scenarios they put him in i do kind of uh i did enjoy him coming back and seeing like the state that his family was in after he was like gone and he was trying to just hold that whole thing of like how much do you do for your old friends that you used to know before you changed right that's what that movie seemed to totally be about it's just like how how much do you let those guys influence your life right now. And if you let it go too much, then you might get into some fucked up trouble and get everybody killed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why that movie didn't do well. You had Samuel Jackson in it. I mean, Nicholas Cage was, I thought, great in that role as the junior Brown. I think that might have been one of the great Luke Cage, Luke, uh, Luke Cage uh, Nicholas Cage roles because he really. He, he got really into was, it. Yeah, he was in it. That, that, that was him at his manic best. I think he started doing stuff like that at movies that didn't need it. Yeah, well, he did that, and then I think Con Air came out pretty fast after that, and I don't think people were jiving with that southern accent in Con Air. Ah, dude, Con Air is a real time capsule. Like, Dave Chappelle as, like, just this, like, pinball that gets thrown out of the the cargo hold. The Indian guy, fuck you, buddy. Uh, Uh, Yeah, all those, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, man, uh, people give those, those movies a bunch of shit, but, like, they do exactly what the fuck they're supposed to do. There's this movie, uh, you know I love apes. Uh, Whoa, watch out. Yeah, you know I love apes. Uh, and uh, fucking uh, that new King Kong movie, it's fucking killer diller, man. It all, 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 it, all, it does, all it does is like show you how he likes to chill, and if you fuck with him, you're going to get fucked up. And they do that over and over for like two hours. And that to me is what one of those movies is supposed to be. He's not supposed to hide for like 50 minutes until we're ready for him. He's not supposed to be like maybe 30 feet tall running into like little stuff. He's supposed to be like a mountain that is an ape and he's supposed to fuck shit up. And that's what that movie does. So if I have a movie recommendation for this week, check out Kong Skull Island. Hit a, hit a, hit a fucking matinee. You'll be glad you did. I mean, I'm such a fan of the original and I used to live in a building with Faye Ray, who was the girl in his hand. Like, mm-hmm. so, uh, but I'll be honest, my favorite ape movie of all time is Mighty Joe Young. Well, it, I mean, what's the difference? I, I, I get that. It's kind of a rip off, not a rip off, but it was kind of the same vibe as Kong. But I cry every time at the end of Mighty Joe Young. When well, the 1930s crank the camera version or the, the 1930s. Yeah. When he's in that burning building, he saves the, I think it was a young girl and he falls and dies and the girl's still in his hands safe. I'm, if that was on right now, I'd be crying. 
Jesus. Because it's like, the, the, obviously, there's no CGI. Right. You know, it, it, you probably tell it's just a dude in a, a gorilla outfit. <laughs> but it's just, God, <laughs> damn, I prefer that over CGI. Like, you know, I don't like the CGI shit today. I'd rather see a guy in a monkey outfit. Well, like, I, I, I got to tell you, I think you would like how, like, furry and, like, real the Kong is. He doesn't look like he's made of computers. I mean, he obviously probably is, but you know, he looks like a furry big animal. I th I think you'd dig it. I think you would. Dig I it. probably will go see. I don't see a lot of movies anymore because I'm too busy doing, you know, fucking open mics and getting into the jungle still. <laughs> well, that's one thing I was going to talk about uh, at the, at the end here is just trying to be like, in LA, you can see somebody who's on TV at an open mic any day of the week because there's just not enough shows to go around for all the talent in the no. town. And there's no, you know, when you see somebody like Earl or like, or like even myself, you know, uh, say that they went to go work out at a mic or something, it's like people, it blows people's minds that are from other places or even from cool places like New York, where, I mean, if we're in New York right now, you'd probably have a few shows. Yeah, every I mean, night, you, you know? know, I think Mark Norman told me he's like the king of new york uh he goes up like six seven times a night like la you can't do that you just you yeah. go maybe three times yeah you maybe. gotta drive to all these spots yeah the, the the geography is is the fucked up part like i honestly almost wish that there was some weird uh like earthquake that combined the cities into one just big megalopolis. Well, I would love that. That we could just go to like, I could go to a San Diego club because it's only 20 minutes away now. Yeah. <laughs> I could go to a, you know what I mean? But, just go to all these different places in this compacted city. But in like New York, you can like, I've only done comedy in New York once. Thank you, Patrick Milligan of the stand. You gave me my first New York spot, but you, you know, everyone after that was like, well, dude, we can walk down here to Broadway comedy club. And, and then down, you know, three blocks over is Caroline's. And it was like, you can't like, I guess you could walk from the comedy store to the laugh factory, but these aren't exactly open mics. So, right. uh, you know, you, you'd have a spot at the comedy store and then get in your car and go to, uh, I don't know the anchor bar in Costa Mesa, but you have to have a car, right? Uh, you you have to have to, dude. You have to have a car in LA. I mean, you can I guess use Uber, but then that would be I mean, you're yeah. paying to do open mics, uh, right? Right. Which is uh, they touch on that in the new so, uh, show Crashing that his wife is just breaking it down to him like, motherfucker, you pay to do comedy. Like I can't, I can't support you anymore. Like this is so weird for me to say, but like I can't watch you spending money to go do comedy and then say, Oh, you're going to be a big comic someday. But that's what it ends up being for a lot of people for a few years. You know? Oh my, I, I forget who I told us, you know, I probably my first in LA. Oh yeah. I mean, my first 12 years, I probably spent maybe as much as $20,000, uh, and, uh, gas money more than anything. Uh, you know, you, meals you're at the comedy club or you know if you're going to liam's which mm -hmm. you know that's an hour drive probably 30 bucks in gas uh i mean you know it's i pay i did pay to do comedy the first 12 years yeah um so. it, it, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like people when people see the real of what you really have to do like if, if they had told me honestly i came out here to be a screenwriter and i said uh, and I, I think if i had just went and decided to like 
try to impress screenwriter fuck faces and do little contests and stuff and try to get my stuff read and just strictly focus on that. I might've sold a couple screenplays by now. Like honestly, probably really, but comedy was so much more immediate, but it takes so long. So often they, you know what I'm saying? I feel yeah. like I fucked myself by getting into comedy because I was so impatient with, with uh screenwriting and being from Missouri, who the fuck wants to read your fucking screenplay loser. You just another maybe, Huckleberry, you maybe know, Kamala. <laughs> oh, dude. A lot I would of time love... on his hands. <laughs> Certainly not on his knees. I would want to send him a draft of my screenplay. He'd read it. Uh, he'd prop up one of his thumbs with it. You're fucked up. Dude, there's the saddest story. Like, you know, he doesn't have any legs anymore because of diabetes and he didn't really take care of himself. And so I guess he paints these chairs or something. Like, they're custom made and he'll, like, do art on the chairs. And someone ordered four, four of them and they backed out. So he finished these four chairs and then he was on the side of the road trying to sell them. Get the yeah, fuck. Why are you trying to depress me? Oh, dude. It's like I almost bought one just to, you know. I mean, I did buy the book. You literally almost bought one of his chairs. So I'm, what the fuck am I going to do with the chair painted by Kamala? Put it uh, next to some of this fucking hockey bullshit you got in here. But I, dude, I, you know, I'm just saying, I don't want to be I, as as a person who who draws and writes and does comedy. I don't want to be the Kamala on the side of the road. I don't want to be all fucked up, and because I have all these different interests, so it's like that's why I'm kind of just going really hard at the comedy now that fucking Clee, my girlfriend, is making enough money that I can actually just fucking concentrate on spending my spending my money doing uh you know, buy materials for my art and getting my shit out there, you know, and try to produce my, my shit. Please the best dude. She's uh, yeah, I definitely want to mention her because it's like, yeah, she's uh, like, she's really the best girlfriend I've ever had. Like for real, for real. And it's like, it's crazy when you can look at it in relief. Like I've, I had girlfriends for like four years that weren't as good as Clee. You know what I mean? Like just, it was probably just inertia. They kept us together, you know. And it's hard in LA comedy to keep a girlfriend. Oh, dude, yeah. Believe me, I know. <laughs> well, all these all these things pop up to fuck up your relationships. Like people people being aggro over the fact that you're happy with some chick. You what's, do run into that. What's well, a very alpha male world, uh, specifically at the comedy store, just because it's like you know, in the comedy store it's amazing. It really has nothing to do with the club, but like you know, like last night at roast battle, like, you know, everyone's hanging out. It's like, everyone's checking out who's on the patio, who's talking to who. And, and you've got so many people who fucked up there. You know, there's so many, you know, uh, Eskimo brothers and sisters <laughs> uh, that if you are dating a comic, uh, everyone has to think, well, if she's fucking Earl, she'll fuck me. And so, you know, it just, yeah, there's about. a, there's a fair amount of that. Like, dude, if she'll fuck that guy, she'll fuck me. Oh my god! Then it's so much of that. Oh, dude, it's like it's brutal. And then you have to deal with seeing, uh, you know, your people talk up there, and, and like you know, in the, my most recent situation, uh, people call me. Hey man, we saw your ex. She looks great. I was like, I don't want to fucking. <laughs> that happened to me worst. the other night. Like I was watching UFC by myself. I'm in my underwear. I'm in a great mood. Nothing. <laughs> think about anything. And this uh, friend of mine calls me. Hey, I saw 
so and so I'm at a show with her right now. She looks amazing. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, uh, dude. That, that, I don't want to, and that's I think realistically. That might be one of the things that keeps us together forever is I don't want her to get super fine after me and start fucking these losers. You know what I'm saying? And me having to, uh, to put up with it. I well, really think we'll, we'll work our relationship out before I have to deal with that bullshit. I'm okay with that because, uh, you know, outside of Matt Broussard, I don't think uh, you're going to find an upgrade from my physical godlike stature. <laughs> But wouldn't that be the worst though? She starts fucking some some fucking fat ass Palmer who sucks. Wouldn't that be worse than her trying to fuck a a, 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 a Greek god or something? Wouldn't that be worse? It's tough. It's tough. I see what you're saying, and uh, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> Just leave it at that. Uh, but you know, I think it also depends on. Uh, your security uh, with yourself like uh i went through a situation with a couple girlfriends ago uh won't mention any names and uh it was like hey if you want to fuck these losers go ahead you know like let's see how this works out for you <laughs> and uh let's just say they ended up contacting me so uh the grass ain't always greener <laughs> especially when it's obviously not greener it's usually shit brown <laughs> but i've been on the same side of the tracks it's like maybe i can get an upgrade if she's fucking me maybe this you know and it's like oh that's the real deadly trap that i i really feel like i probably avoided that early on a man cleese thing it's like oh i can get her i can get this it's like nah man just just slow your roll and relax and be be glad that she gets all your stupid ass 80s references yeah just be, be glad that you know she gives a fuck about whether or not you sell this painting you did or, or that you that these scripts are on this guy's desk or that guy's desk or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like people who actually give a fuck about who you are and they give a fuck about the things that make you happy, that's real hard to find out here. You can find a cute girl. You can find a subservient bitch who doesn't know about uh, uh, Hollywood and will just do whatever because she thinks you're going to make it. You can find all these types of chicks. That's easy. Finding a chick who like knows how hard it is to be in your position and helps you with all that and understands when you got to come home at three o'clock and gets all your dumbass jokes and wants to fuck you and all that. That's like a lot. That's amazing. I like, you know, I've, I've definitely made a few boo-boos, uh, in my life, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, hopefully, uh, dude, you'll, 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 uh, you'll find love in the way that, uh, I think what's his name? Uh, the playboy guy finds love. Like, I think you just have like three or four girlfriends that work as a team until you get too old to fuck. Well, I, I had a good one, uh, but, uh, you know, was, uh, a lot of outside things on the periphery happened uh, that were out of my control. But, uh, you know, see what happens. Never say never. <laughs> never say never again. Never, uh, like the King Cobra song off the Iron Eagle soundtrack said, uh, never say die. I'm obsessed with that movie. How did you get Lewis Gossett Jr., an Academy Award winner, to be in a King Cobra video? It's like he must have fired his agent as soon as that video shoot ended. Dude, I bet you it was built into his Iron Eagle contract. It was like, okay, you have to be in all photo plays and videos that would be used in conjunction with promoting the Iron Eagle brand. And he's like, yeah, whatever. I'll sign it away. Whatever. I don't give a fuck. And he ends up in a fucking King Cobra video as like the black human in a King Cobra video. Well, it was like he was training King, the band members, all five guys and they're 80s metal guys like, 
you know, the typical uh, uh, bleach blonde hair and skinny. And in the video, he's training them to be elite fighters. And it's like, he, I don't know how he kept a straight face in this video. Like, what am I? I was well, an officer and a gentleman. What dude, am I doing? Dude, he should have won an Oscar for that. That's, oh, he should have. Dude, people who can act really well in, uh, in situations like that, that, that is a... That's bigger than if you're with a great actor like Richard Gere and and you know a great director like uh fucking that guy fuck he he directed Devil's Advocate too, fuck that guy's a good director the dude who did I right. want gentleman he's a, he's a profound really good director. Well, it's like Jamie Fox won an Oscar for uh, playing Ray Charles, which you know I I don't think it was that difficult because you're playing Ray Charles who's a, a, an amazing. Oh human shit! Band. I think it's the same guy, Taylor Hackford. Okay. Boom. Ah, that's that's a good pull. But let's see Jamie Foxx win an Oscar for playing Tubbs in Miami Vice. Oh, uh, yeah, dude. That Dude, I, you know what's fucking weird? To say that Jamie Foxx is not as charismatic as Philip Baker or Philip Thomas Hall, whatever the fuck that guy is. Philip Michael Thomas. Philip Michael Thomas, that guy. To say that Jamie Foxx isn't as good at being that sort of guy as that dude is a hard thing to say, but I'll say it. Like, he wasn't as good. He just sort of was really black in Miami Vice. I I really didn't like that. That's my probably least favorite Michael Mann thing. Well, I thought the weird thing with that movie, movie. was yeah. it paid no tribute to the TV show. Like right. it was like it just watching like Bad Boys Three. Right. Yeah. It was it was watching a less action intensive, shot on a crappy video. By the way, right. You know, version of uh, what you just said. But like, it's Bad like, Boys Three. You're right, though. You think Jamie Foxx, Philip Michael Thomas. Uh, we have an Academy Award winner. We have Philip Michael Thomas. But, you know, there's just something like in the original. It's like with any original movie, like there's a charm to Philip Michael Thomas playing this Rico Suave, you know, Miami PD guy yeah. and Don Johnson and even the guy they had playing Switek, uh heavy set actor, good actor, but he ain't Michael Talbot. Right, right. Well, I would, I would love to 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 see a Miami Vice that was really about the heroes being bad cops, right. trying to be good cops. Because I feel like Miami Vice just I don't, took a turn to that edge of like some people in the police force were corrupt and shit. But like half the time, Tubbs or you know Crockett, Crockett was driving a fucking Lamborghini on a cop salary even if it's some oh this is my undercover vehicle that's still some shady garbage and everybody we know now from watching cocaine cowboys and shit there were cops who would be busted for like driving 50 and a 30 and then they look in their trunk and they got ten thousand of cash and a couple pounds of coke and that was just like the perks of being a cop in miami at that time yeah i mean uh, and i i love roast battle but one of the best things about it is you get to meet people you probably wouldn't have access to because they come watch the show and the documentary maker billy corbin no oh, shit who did cocaine cowboys yeah cocaine cowboys 2 uh all the uh you uh, you know 30 for 30s he was at roast battle the other night and you know he came up to me said hey i'm a fan or whatever and i'm like wow i gotta talk to you dude and it was like I mean, Cocaine Cowboys is, to me, the greatest documentary of all time. Oh, yeah. I definitely, I know that it is. I mean, it's one of those, I feel like for the, for the, for the, the how, what Scarface did for the movies that a lot of uh, black dudes want to watch for some weird sort of street cred and lots of dudes want to watch for a weird street cred. That's what that movie does for documentaries in the same, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just, it's a feel and it's a, it, it's really 
it really shows what it was like back then, like all the different, the different, the different loopholes that would never be there again, that they were able to use to such great effect. That's what all great crime stories are about, right? Like between this time and that time, this was totally legal and they weren't patrolling this part and they didn't know that we were doing this. They didn't know this technique and they didn't know that technique. And during that time that they didn't know this shit, we got rich and then we got busted because they started learning what the fuck we were doing. Well, I just liked how they interviewed each person individually instead of just having one guy just narrate, you know, the the Miami drug scene. You actually interviewed Mickey, the pilot, Reby, the enforcer, uh, you know, John, the the, kind of the brains of the operation. Mm -hmm. And so you got three different sides to the same story. Right. It was like Rashomon, like a fucking. Right. uh, Yeah. Like, you know, usually you just get one, you know, the narrator's version of the Miami drug scene. And it's a good story. But like you almost got like three stories in one. Well, just the fact that their skyline is the result of Coke money. Yeah. They would be a shitty Iowa size as far as I, Iowa, Iowa's height. They'd be Iowa's height if all that drug money hadn't come in. Yeah, and it's probably still uh, that way to a degree. I mean, uh, you know, it's not like people stop doing cocaine. But, <laughs> you know, I see it, uh, you know, a fair amount myself uh, on the scene. Well, dude. This has been, I'm glad we did this. First of all, I apologize for this taking so long. You oh, dude, dude. You should dude. have been on a lot earlier. Oh, man. Don't, don't worry about it. Hey, anytime you want to talk about some uh, some real dork shit, uh, definitely hit me up, man. Oh, dude, you'll all, you, all, you have a standing invite on this couch. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter and Instagram and all that bullshit? Yeah, well, it's uh, Ed Greer Destroys on all that shit. Real simple. So it's E-D-G-R-E-E-R Destroys. Uh, on on every single one of those. Twitter, uh, Instagram. Fuck it. Oh, on Instagram, you can see a lot of my art. So yeah, Ed's uh, a fantastic artist. He's uh, drawn me several uh, not paintings, but how? what's the uh, proper uh, uh Artwork, uh, yeah, artwork is, is good enough. And, yeah, uh, uh, did that last thing of you and uh, you and Lois self portraits? I guess you might say. Yeah, yeah, uh, I do. I do portraits and comic book type stuff, and and I do storyboards a, and stuff too. Is there? A, do you sell these works of art anywhere? Yeah, you can. Uh, you're going to be able to buy them on my Society Six page. It's going to be Edgar Destroy Society Six. So it'll probably be up by the time this comes out. Yeah, this will be out in about two hours. Uh, yep, it doesn't take too long to edit. <laughs> I don't edit, and I'd like to congratulate you for being the fourth person on Inappropriate Earl to say the N word. Um, <laughs> well, well, you know, when it's not directed at someone else, right? <laughs> well, a lot of people were uh, upset about my last podcast with Lonnie Johnson. Who uh, he? I think he said it maybe like twelve times, because uh, I told the famous story about the first time I heard that word. Oh, okay. And I would I would have Lonnie say the word. I would oh, tell yeah, the yeah. story, and then I Lonnie would you know. <laughs> Wait, you got a you got a uh, n word stevedore on your podcast? Uh, well, uh, I've had one white guy say it, and I won't say his name, <laughs> but he's, he says to me after, "Hey, you're going to delete that, right?" I'm like, "Nope." Good so, for you. I Journalistic integrity, baby. I don't say the N-word. Yeah. And, but yeah, Ed Greer Destroys, and there'll, there'll be an Etsy store and a Society6 store called Ed, uh, Ed Greer Destroys very shortly. And, and they'll you, be able to buy all my designs. And do you do the Facebook thing or no? Oh, yeah, Facebook. Just uh, It's just Ed Greer. Just search, search Ed Greer. I'll be the one that you find. 
Uh, so just follow Ed. This is one of the reasons why I do inappropriate or all. You know, oh, and the Clean Ed Show. That's our podcast. We went on hiatus, but we're coming back, baby. So what? Where can people find that? Uh, uh, Clean Ed, the Ed and Clee Show dot com. Yeah, you got to type all that bullshit out. Clee is K L E E. It was a cute thing. We're buying Clean Ed <laughs> this week. The fucking domain. So we don't have to type all that bullshit. But yeah, Clean Ed, the Ed and Clee Show. We talk about movies. We talk about nerd stuff. We have a plethora of guests from like the UCB, Jimmy Fallon, all kind of shit like that. And is it on like iTunes and SoundCloud? That's on iTunes. It's on uh, SoundCloud. It's on all that shit. We'll follow that. Clee's awesome too. We'll get her. Uh, maybe we'll have the two of you on one day. And, yeah, she's uh, at Clee the Pimp on Twitter. Clee the Pimp on Twitter. She's awesome. Like a, a person I wish I saw more of. But uh, you know, that's the uh, wacky world of LA comedy. <laughs> fall into different uh, cliques and circuits, and you lose track with people. But uh, uh, she's she's really cool. So Clee the Pimp on Twitter. Uh, inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Uh, you know the drill. If you can, if you haven't. Please leave a review. It helps. You know, Joe Rogan has like 5,000 reviews. I've got like 100. So, you know, it helps to just... And don't say anything. Don't say it's like the greatest podcast of all time or something. Play it cool. You know, just, <laughs> you know, and if you think it sucks, I leave up all the bad reviews. I don't think there's one. But if someone left one, I would leave it up. Um, I don't really look at the reviews anymore after seeing uh, comments about me on... Uh, reddit i'm like i'm good on this oh uh, dude that that's that's one thing that i'm not looking forward to also well, if you have if you have a group of people on to talk about how shitty iron fist was uh let me know i'll, I'll come on I, I haven't seen it yet but <laughs> yeah. uh you know i uh someone uh the last review I read of me, uh, I, for some reason, I Googled Earl Skakel in comic mm -hmm. uh, I don't, just to see what was out there. And uh, this guy on Reddit was like, yeah, uh, I don't like this guy. Uh, he seems like the type of guy who hangs out at the comedy store because he doesn't have to work. And he just plays the outrageous guy and he takes off his shirt and says the N-word and faggot. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this guy's got me nailed. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'd say. I don't know. But then he puts a second paragraph going, you know, someone can convince me he's cool, but I don't think he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ultimate Hollywood back out. Then I read, I, I saw it, it had 33 comments, and I'm like, I'm out. I'm not reading those comments. Oh, uh, yeah, so, no, no, that's that's a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. That got me, uh, I'll never uh, read reviews again about me, and you know, because Roast Battle fans are rabid, so they like, you know, it's a hey, whole they, thing. Hey, they, they love hard and they hate hard, baby. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough that on Periscope, they fucking adore me, uh, but uh, some of the fans who watch the Comedy Central show uh, were like, well, we don't know if he beat this guy, and well, he sucks, and it's like jesus i'm never reading a review again so uh thank you guys very much ed greer is the best follow him everywhere at ed greer destroys and uh, we got a few uh episodes coming up stephen piercy from rats coming back for more and uh trying to get these 80s guys but uh they're they're tough not to crack because i gotta i don't do this mobile they gotta come to me and if you're trying to get someone from the 80s to come to you it's a fucking adventure <laughs> Uh, but worth it when it happens. So uh, we'll see you guys soon.